I am not an innocent, not bystander. An innocent bystander. I am a threat, am a threat, to, my threat enemy. to my enemy. I am powerful I am powerful. I am strategic, I am strategic and, bold. and bold. I will not sit idly by. I will take ground. I will advance. I will tear through my enemy. And my enemy will hate me. I will not avoid the difficult fight. I will fight. I will be wounded. I will be targeted and I will bleed. I will not tire. My wounds will be healed. I will see tragedy. I will feel pain. But I will be restored. My feet will not stumble. My hands will hold fast. I will not be intimidated. And page 147, do you think we're going to make it? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the role of man, husband, and father. That's right. Once again, we're on there as we saw at the top of page 147. What is the standard of manhood? God. That's right, Bill. God is the correct answer. It's usually a safe answer, and it's the right one. Uh, just so tonight. God is the standard. But what's the problem? We don't listen to God. We listen to ourselves. We listen to other people, uh, our peers, or popularity, or the opinions, the polls, or even society, and blah, blah, blah. And that's why things are so messed up when it comes to manhood, okay? And it spills downhill, not only in the family, but again, unfortunately, even in the church. And we saw, well, let's get back on track. We already saw, well, what makes for a Christian man? And we saw all the different characteristics there. And then we said, well, okay, so you're a Christian godly man. Uh, what's the point? Well, the point is the role of that in society and how that is supposed to be a profound witness in our society uh, and frankly as men we need to lead the way back by example so we need to not only be that but as we are in this world just not of it just being a godly man is a profound witness okay and then last time we saw was not just for society's sake it's for this crazy thing called the family okay the family okay our families messed up <laughs> just a little bit, okay? And uh, it takes two to tangle. Learned that in many years of counseling, certainly in marriage counseling. But uh, men, we are to be the spiritual leaders of the home. And if we get that far, those three of you who have the gift of faith, sure we will, Pastor Billy. Thanks, Mary. Yeah, if we get that far, I think we will. Uh, we're going to see that uh, we need to also be the spiritual leaders in the church, okay? And we dealt with that a little bit before. But where we left off, of course, is the issue with the, in the family, as a, as a family man, as a godly man, uh, as a Christian man, we are to follow the principles of leaving and cleaving. We are to love as Christ loved. We are to have a love for our wives, and certainly our family will see that tonight, uh, that sanctifies. In short, that, hey, listen, ask your spouse this, okay? Uh, is your spouse, is your wife, men, are they a better woman because they married you? Are they a stronger Christian because they married you? That's how profound and godly your walk is. That's the goal. 
Now, if it's not there, we just work prayerfully towards that. And by his spirit, he gives us that ability. And of course, we need to have a love that nourishes and cherishes in the family. And we need to be the, where the buck stops here. We need to be the decision makers. We need to lead our family. We need to listen to input. But when the buck stops here, we have to make those godly decisions. And even if our family goes south, even if everybody on the planet goes south, as men, we need to have that mentality like Joshua, as for me and my house, I don't care what the world's doing. I don't care what you're doing. We will serve the Lord. Even if your own family rejects God's vision, as a man, you cannot budge. We're going to serve the Lord. And it provides stability and security in the family. And again, it provides the same thing for the church. Now, let's take a look at for the little crumb snatchers. Okay, the chitlins, the linoleum, what was that? Linoleum rats, what was that? The other one, I, that was a new one. I like that one. I, I think I got it wrong. Linoleum lizards, I like that. That works good for the desert. What's that? Drape apes. That's cool. So that's where that spaghetti smear come from. But anyway, let's continue on. A man as a father, okay? A man as a father is where we're at, page 155. And we're going to see two examples starting off. The first one, of course, is the Old Testament, Deuteronomy. Then we're going to see in Ephesians with the New Testament, Old and New Testament, what is a godly father supposed to look like? Let's take a look. Deuteronomy uh, 6, verse 4 through 9. Moses, he recaps the Ten Commandments, so he gives the law, right? He gives the orders from God. And how many orders from God are, for, are bad? That's bad for us. Thank you. All of God's command are for our good and the reason why there's so many is because there's so much sin and he has all these fences to protect us so god gives the ten commandments for our good certainly in the context with the israelites and then all of a sudden after that he gives some in important instructions listen to the sons and how to pass on a godly heritage okay uh, the goal as a christian if god blesses you with kids it isn't just to have kids and some, somehow just make it through that phase of life, okay? It's to pass a godly heritage to the next generation, right? They're not just there sucking air and causing you to write checks and pay for everything. They're there as a gift from God to pass on to the next godly generation. Boy, we have forgot that, haven't we? We'll get to that in a second. So here's what he says. He says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And here's what you do. You shall love the Lord your God, uh, you know, at least on Sundays. And when it's convenient with your calendar, and as long as, you know, that football game's not on, and all that's, or I'm sorry, when it's convenient, and when, no, he says, with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. And he said, uh, listen, and these words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to who? Your sons, your kids, and you shall listen. Talk of them when you sit at your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. How many guys would say that kind of pretty much covers wherever you go? Okay, is the vernacular. And you shall bind them as a sign on your hand that shall be as frontals on your forehead, and you shall write them on your doorposts of your house and in your gates. So you not only teach them at all times, anytime that God gives you the ability, but wherever you go, your house is about God and about the scripture. Why? Because what is the goal as a Christian godly man, certainly as a godly parent? My job is with these crumb snatchers is to not just survive and try to keep them alive, whether by my own hand or something else. It's to pass on that godly torch. 
Okay, that's the, my, the, pri, the priority of there. And this is what he says. He says, what a privilege and a blessing it is to raise children. And God has made it clear through the psalmist that children are his, underline this word, are his gift to us. A gift. Now see, this is the problem. Our society, what is our society's view of kids today? A burden, right? A pain. And I remember this when, before I got saved. Two things I was never going to do, and I made it very bold and very clear and very loud. I will never get married, and I will never have kids. Praise God. God doesn't listen to you sometimes. Anybody? Because <laughs> you know what? It's a blessing. Absolute blessing. But that's not what our society says. So here it is. Society gets it wrong. Why God gives you kids in the first place. They're a gift, and your job, parent, is to pass on that godly torch. Okay, but then society even goes so far, hey, forget the godly torch thing. Okay, I'm not even going to mess with that. They're a burden, they're a pain, they cost too much, etc. Blah. I don't know. Hey, did anybody think that maybe you were a, a, a challenge and you cost a couple bucks for your parents? You somehow think it's going to stop with, come on, it's crazy. But that's the mentality. Now, this is how sick it's gotten. I'll use that word. God says children are a gift, and it's a privilege. And, and, and it's your responsibility to invest in their lives, to pass on that godly torch. And our society today is murdering children by the millions, by the millions, by the tens of millions. Killing them. How far we have fallen. They're a gift, but now there's such a pain, such a burden, I will kill them before they come out of the womb. As if God doesn't see all this? That's how bad it's gotten. Okay, but let's remind ourselves, what's God say here in this psalmist? Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. It's a privilege. Anybody like, uh, uh, if you've ever taught or teach a Sunday school class or a Bible class or anything, isn't it kind of fun? Right? A lot of work with this kid. It's cool. It's a privilege, right? Did you know we're supposed to do that for our kids? Same thing. Just a different class. Is what he's saying. It's a gift from the Lord, okay? Plus, I don't know about you, but I've, I've learned a lot uh, from my kids, okay? Uh, I, remember, I remember just the first time becoming a father. I mean, I thought even, excuse me, as a pastor, that I really understood what it meant by the love of God. I think I understood it scripturally. I think I understood, uh, understood it experientially by being forgiven from all the junk that I've done and, and, and not saying I'm even perfect today. Uh, uh, and, and I understand it theologically, okay? But it wasn't until I had kids that I really, I think I really understood the depths of God's love. And as a father for your own kids and, the, and your, the love you have for your kids and how you will sacrifice, you'll do whatever it takes to provide for your kids and, and be there for your kids and love your kids and you can't wait to be with your kids. And then the scripture uses stuff like this, our heavenly father, and that we're his kids and that he's promised to take care of us. Whoa, that brings a whole new light into it. So I think sometimes part of the gift of being a, a parent is our kids can even teach us about what it means to be a child of God. Okay? Uh, let's continue on. The fruit of the womb is a reward, not a pain. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed, how blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They shall not be ashamed, and when they speak with their enemies in the gate. Okay? Got a lot of kids to back you up, especially sons. 
Okay, they're going to town. I don't have time to go into what was going on at the gate, but that's where they did a lot of legal stuff and what have you. But the above passage from Deuteronomy shows us how awesome is the task of raising kids. Moses indicates the way to rear godly progeny is to be, here's your first blank, a godly parent. Why? How many guys have heard of this phrase? A monkey see, monkey do. So what you do as a parent, you cheat. And you just tell your kids what they're supposed to do, but you never do it. No, right? You back it up, right? That's what he says. You need to be a godly parent. It isn't enough to just leave it up to your Sunday school teacher or leave it up to your church. You need to be doing it in the home. And boy, isn't that the problem. Many times we don't back it up with consistency. Oh, we put on that good face on Sunday. But how about the rest of the week? Are we still as men living for Jesus Christ? Not saying we're perfect. But you know what? Sometimes, you know what uh, I've learned is that your kids uh, need to see uh, dad and even mom on their knees asking for forgiveness for God or even come to them. Well, you know what? I, I blew it as your dad or your mom. Would you please forgive me? Hey, that's a profound thing. Your kids need to learn that. They need to see that in you as well as being that example. He says, notice he tells the men of Israel that they must first have a passion for God, there's the next blank, passion for God. Uh, and in addition, the commandments must be on your heart. Now, a passion for God, that's what he means. He says, listen, you need to love God, men, people, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. That's a passionate person. That's not a casual Christian. That's a person who is passionate with God. Not some of your might, some of your soul. It's with all of it. You are passionate about God. Now, can I tell you something? If you just fall head over in heels with love with Jesus, and if you just keep falling in love with him every day, you're not going to have to work at, am I being a godly parent? Because you ooze it. Because you're so close to Jesus and you just love him. That's all you got to do. It's an option. Just love Jesus. It's so hard. What do you mean it's so hard to do? He's rescued us from hell. If that's all salvation was, excuse me, how is it hard to love him? but there's so much more, okay? You need to have that passion. The Hebrew word for heart is leb. Let's say that. Leb. leb. That sounds like a hunting buddy, doesn't it? Hey, leb, come here, bring me the shotgun. You know, that's what I think, Bill. Uh, and it refers to, though, the seat of emotions, not the seat of a shotgun, okay? Moses' point is that we must have a passion for God and his word and that it affects us not only mentally, but emotionally. We should be energized with a passion, your next blank, passion for God that affects every area of our lives and produces godly behavior. This type of heart produces the godly character that we discussed earlier in 1 Timothy 3. And as Moses points out, we must live and model the godly lives that we want our children uh, to exhibit. Okay, you back it up with your life. Don't be a hypocrite. Now, so you gotta be perfect, but when you blow it, just own up to it. That's a great example, right? Okay, because you're teaching them not to be a plastic Christian. Okay, and uh, just a phony thing. You look good on the outside, but inside, inside, just like Jesus said, you're dead man's bones. You're a hypocrite. Okay, you say one thing, you do another. Don't do that, okay? And uh, he says, notice there, he says, it's not just a mental thing, it's an emotional thing. Okay? You're just so, have you ever, I don't know if it's in the notes or whatever, but you get to the point where you get emotional about Jesus. I'm crying all the time. No, that's not what I'm talking about. Okay, although there are times I think that in your walk with Jesus, I'm not saying this to brag or nothing, but uh, I, I feel like I'm passionate when I teach and preach. Uh, I, I, and sometimes in prayer, sometimes, I'm saying every time, but sometimes, man, you're just bawling your eyes out like a little baby. I mean, there, there's emotions to that. Okay, I'm not just saying hype it up for the sake of hype. Uh, but but it, it's not just your walk with Jesus is deep where it's, 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 it's a relationship. And what comes with that is these positive emotions 
The genuineness of that. But I will say this too, especially as men, especially as those godly leaders, that it's, you're also emotional when you see the word of God being violated. You're not passive about it, you're passionate. It's like, no, we will not go there. No, we will not stand for that. No, we will not do that. And that there's an emotion behind that. There's not a passivity, we're passionate. It's not just a mental thing. I can memorize 400 verses. Well, that's great. First of all, what'd you learn? I don't know. <laughs> you just wasted your time. You're supposed to apply it. But it's to uphold it. And there's a passion to maintain God's standard. Because as men, we are so convinced that God's way is the only way, not just the right way. Not just for a successful family, but for a successful church and for a successful country, dare I say. And if we're off track, we need to express that mental and emotional spiritual response to God's word and be those leaders and lead the way back. Now let's continue on. Ephesians 6, 4, the New Testament, Paul says this in a nutshell about parenting. And fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of who? The Lord. The Lord. We'll get to that in a little bit, right? You three people who have the gift of faith. Yay, thank you. <laughs> and here's what he says. The first thing we should note is that the instruction is addressed to fathers, right? All right. This should be no surprise since we've seen that the headship of the male is clearly taught from the beginning of creation. We already saw that, right? And, uh, but at the same time, the term here, pateres, uh, probably indicates the responsibility of both parents. So in other words, it's not a cop-out, ladies. It doesn't mean, well, I don't have to do nothing. I don't have to instruct my kids at all or nothing. No. But in general, men are the spiritual leaders. We're the ones with the spiritual mantle. We're the ones who are responsible for the spiritual direction and well-being. The wives help out in that, certainly, but don't leave it up to them. We need to work together. Now he says, now don't embitter your child, okay? Now, first of all, what do he say? He says, you, you want to be a godly man? You want to be a godly husband? You want to be a godly father is the context here? You, you need to understand what God says. You need to not just know the scripture and his commandments, but you got to be so passionate about God and Jesus and his word and convinced of that, that you live that and you're that godly example. And now with your kids, don't embitter them, right? And here's what he says. He said, before stating the positive commands associated with the parenting task, Paul states the negative command, right? Don't just bring him up in instruction. He said, before you even do that, hey, listen, don't provoke your children to anger. Now, the Greek word there, provoke, means to anger, to make angry. Listen, to bring one along to a deep-seated anger. Now, this is serious. I mean, this is something that's stuck in there. Deep-seated. It didn't just go away. This, this thing is in there. It's locked in. I mean, right? And the child begins to get that bitter heart. Uh, towards their parent. Now, MacArthur suggests uh, some different ways how we could unfortunately do that. So don't do these. Let's take a look. He says, first of all, overprotection can lead to that deep-seated anger. Smother your children, fence them in, never trust them, always question whether they're uh, really telling you the truth, never give them an opportunity to develop independence. You're going to embitter them. I can't do nothing right. You never give me a chance. Did you know that sometimes we learn even the little crumb snatchers, by giving them a little rope. Okay? Right? Hey, have you ever had a boss or an employer that always breathed down your neck, man? You had no space? Hey, nitpick you to death. They're always looking over your shoulder. How was that? That's what he's saying. Don't do that to your kids, man. I mean, we gotta, don't go the other extreme and abandon them. We'll, 
We'll get that far, right? Three people have faith. And we're getting better. <laughs> anyway, so, listen, we made it through one page maybe so far. Okay, but he, said, he says, uh, listen, don't do that. If, uh, if they employ with your kids, don't do that. You gotta give them some room to breathe, okay? Because sometimes you learn just not by what you do correctly, but what you do incorrectly, right? And your kids have to have the space to do that. But man, if you sit there and nitpick them to death, it's just, you know, and just embitters them. The next one's favoritism. Wow, don't do this. Comments like, a, hey, why can't you get good grades like your sister? Oh, that's such a freeing statement for the rest of the kids, isn't it? Okay, or uh, I never have to tell your brother twice about doing anything. That can destroy a child. And how does that work for the sibling dynamics? That fosters unity and love. Yes, I'm being sarcastic. <laughs> right? No, all right, you do not compare. Okay, don't compare. Each child is different. Our job, I believe, as parents is to figure out what God has equipped them with, this particular gift, find out what that is, nurture it in a godly fashion, and set them free with guidelines as they maybe make a few mistakes and lead them on that. Don't compare them because nobody's the same. Push for achievement. Many parents pressure their children to excel in school or sports or other activities, and it causes them to become what? Bitter. Man, I've counseled people that have been there, right? Parents want to sometimes live the life they wanted to live but didn't get to live for whatever reason through their kids and they force them into it. But that's not what they want to do. That's not what's on their heart, but they have to do it. Because my dad wanted to be a baseball player and something happened, he couldn't. So all my life, that's all I've ever known. Nothing wrong with baseball. And you could probably excel at it, but deep down inside, this is not your dream. It's your dad's dream. My mom said she always wanted to do this. But that's not what God's created you for. And so it becomes embittering. Okay, uh, discouragement. You can provoke a child to anger by discouraging him, always withholding your approval, and only telling him what is wrong with him. Here's a phrase, and this is great for marriage too, by the way. Uh, people have a way of becoming what you encourage them to be, not what you discourage them to be. Doesn't mean you can't point out some errors in love. That's the key thing though. And as I shared before you, I remember a lady in New York and she was having a really rough time with her teenage son and their relationship was in the trash, right? And she just picked him to death. He couldn't do anything right. And so the counsel that was given to her, okay? And she followed it and it, sure enough, it swung around was this. Listen, here's something. Here's all you gotta do. Try it. Before you say one more negative thing about your son not that he's perfect all kids make mistakes right but before you say one negative thing about your son you have to come up with seven positive things just doing that one thing flipped the whole relationship around still dealt with things where they got out of hand but no longer was it i'm always wrong i never do anything right that will embitter uh your children failure to sacrifice make your child feel like they're an intrusion on your life that's going to provoke them to anger uh, failure to allow for childishness some parents make sure that if the children do anything uh, that is not mature or intellectual they're put down for it don't condemn them for being kids all right they spilled the milk byron they spilled the milk how dare they spill the milk hello right kids are kids Right? Now, if it's a 9,372 times after you told them 9,371 times, that might be a different issue. But it's just going to happen. Kids are kids. Kids are goofy. They, whatever. I'm convinced that my son's characteristics comes from Brandy's side of the family, personally. 
with his antics and stuff. But <laughs> they're going to be kids, man. And they've got to be kids. It's just going to happen, right? They're going to make mistakes. They're going to be goofballs, all right? Let them be a kid, right? And enjoy it. Man, I'm trying my best to enjoy it because I know one day dad's not going to be cool, okay? It's just starting to get there, okay? But uh, it, right now, I'm still kind of cool, right? But, uh, but I know one day when they get that teenage stuff, ah, yeah, but I'm just trying to soak this up right now. But let's continue on. Uh, a neglect. You cannot neglect your child and win. Be there and be available to share their lives with them. You can't afford the price of being too busy for your kids, okay? And that's something that, hey, listen, that's a struggle, right? Because we're all busy, right? But uh, you, you, you got to sacrifice. You got to do your best. Sometimes things come up, but you got to do your best uh, to invest in your kids and that your kids know that you're willing to sacrifice uh, to maintain that. And he says this one, withdrawing love, the top of page 157. Never use your love as a punishment or even as a threat. Daddy won't love you if you do that. Ooh, don't even ever play those games. And I like what he backs this up with this example. Listen, is that how God deals with us? Anybody glad that God doesn't say, hey, listen, if you do that, I'm going to send you straight into hell. Huh? Aren't you glad he's never said that? And he never will? Now, he'll spank us if we get out of line. That's the next uh, paragraph here, right? But aren't you glad he doesn't withhold his love from us? Don't do that to your kids, man. Especially his dads, man, because what are we modeling? You know, we sit there and talk about Father God, our Heavenly Father, Father God this, Father God that. God wants to be your Heavenly Father. He's our Father. He'll take care of us. Father, Father, Father. What kind of Father are we being? Right? So when we speak Father, do they see the godliness? When we speak about God the Father, do they say, oh yeah, that's like my dad. That's awesome. Or it's like, will he love me? What if I get out of line? Will he be for me or will he abandon me? Right? Will he threaten me? Will he... You know, and that's what he's talking about. Now, let's move on. Discipline. You also need to discipline. Because there's times, even though kids are kids, you still need to discipline and instruct in godliness. Paul gives the positive commands now associated with parenting. And he states, bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Discipline is the Greek word padia. And uh, that's what we saw before in the previous chapters. And we learned that it was used in the Greek world to denote the upbringing is your next blank there. The upbringing and the handling of a minor child, okay, and included such aspects as direction, teaching, and chastisement. Now that's the great example we've seen several times in Hebrews chapter 12, uh, and it's a good one to follow, as he states. It reveals that God so loves us that he is committed to training us through godly counsel. Where does that come from? Bible. That's right, whoever said that, the Bible. God, Bible. Usually those are good, safe answers, and they are. Uh, in Christian services. Uh, the Bible, godly instruction, that's where it comes from, okay? As well as chastisement when we stray from that freeing counsel. Is anybody glad that God not only loves you and doesn't withhold his love even when we blow it, but he loves us enough that he doesn't let us go too far? And that he pulls us back, okay? Now he'll give us that rope. Because as our heavenly father, just like an earthly father, we learn sometimes by our mistakes. And then sometimes when we get really rebellious, just like in our earthly father, sometimes you got to spank. Because you're just curbing and you see what they don't see. That's a bad road. That's a harmful road. Don't go there. And if you won't listen to the instruction in general, I'm going to give you some room. Because I want you to learn to be an adult and make your own wise decisions. But if you don't, you're going to get spanking. 
And God will do that too. Why? Because he loves us. Like our earthly fathers uh, need to be the examples as well. Chastisement is your next blank there. Uh, chastisement should be a part of the overall training process of our children. And this is made clear from a multitude of verses you see there. And at the same time, our motivation must always be love as seen in our heavenly father's dealing with us again in Hebrews chapter 12. It's because he loves us. Because we love the, the scripture, what is it? Proverbs uses, we talked about this before, uses some seriously strong language when it comes to disciplining our kids. He flips around. He says, if you don't discipline your kids, you hate your child. Why? Because if you don't discipline your kids, it's like free reign. There's no boundaries. And yet, what does our society say today? Don't spank them. Don't discipline them. Don't do anything. Forget spanking them. Don't even, don't do nothing. You got to let them be free. Free, excuse me? Now, we, we've talked about this before, but let me share it with you. Listen, you can either do it God's way, all right? Or you can do it society's way. Listen to what society's way is doing. Society says as godly men, we need to be those godly examples whose head over uh, heels in love with God, right? With all your heart, all your mind, all your soul. We need to instruct our kids to do the same, to be lovers of the Savior, not lovers of the self. But society says, they flipped it around, it's all about self at all costs. And no matter what self does, you can't say anything bad about it or it's going to destroy the self. As crazy as that is, listen to what it's leading to. Parents in Connecticut have taken their son's school to court. Why? Because their son was caught destroying school property and was expelled from the school. They say now that their son has feelings of unworthiness and his self-worth has been damaged, so they're suing the school. <laughs> what? That's how bad it's getting. Uh, in Maine, signs that say happy holidays and singing Christmas carols are now being banned because it might make some people feel excluded. Okay? Mother's Day in Manhattan is being eliminated because kids may not have a mother, and this could damage their self-esteem. But apparently so does kickball and dodgeball and similar games because that promotes competitiveness and that makes some kids feel excluded and that's no longer tolerated. What? Now listen, researchers, okay, and you think, well, well, we've, we've got to do this. I know the Bible says something polar opposite, but we've got to do this because this is the panacea for the ills of society. This is gonna raise up a great uh, generation. Researchers put this baloney to the test, the self-esteem teaching, and, and, and in schools, and by measuring how high the students thought of themselves academically. Listen, as it turned out, the more highly they thought of themselves and their supposed abilities, the less ability they had. Direct opposite. A case in point is how kids in Washington, D.C. ranked number one in the country for self-esteem, yet they came second to last in academic performance. And, and one researcher stated, quote, years of self-love propaganda has succeeded only in producing self-deluded kids. Don't do it God's way. Don't tell them to have savior esteem, number one, always with all your heart, mind, and soul. And whatever you do when they get out of line, don't discipline them. It's all about self. And look at what we're doing. As godly men, men, we need to lead the way back. God comes first. Okay, Bible says esteem others more than yourself. Okay, and you want to be a good disciple of Jesus, you need to deny yourself. Okay, don't be feeding that thing. But that's what he says. The word uh, translate instruction is the Greek word nuthesia, and it's almost synonymous with discipline, but it puts more stress on the verbal side 
of the disciplinary process. It refers to the training by word, by the word of encouragement when this is uh, sufficient, but also of remonstrance and the reproof and the blame where these may be required. One of the greatest tools for parenting is to develop the habit of continually giving, here it is again, words of encouragement to your kids. Do you take the time not just to point out what they're doing wrong? Yes, you need to do that. But do you take the time to specifically point out the things you do appreciate and the things they're doing right? And dare I say more so than what they're doing wrong. It really will turn things around. Solomon wrote, train up a child in the way he should go and when he's old, he's not gonna depart from it. Good paraphrase might read, adapt the training of your child so that it's in keeping with secular psychology. I'm sorry, wrong line. What's that? Oh, in keeping in line with God's given characteristics and tendencies, okay? When he comes to maturity, he's not gonna depart from the training he's received. And as this phrase indicates, God has bent your child in a certain way. Have you ever seen sometimes how they uh, make wood products and stuff and how they like, uh, like, like molding or trim and it's just a straight piece of wood, you know, what have you? But what they do is they heat it up with steam and what have you and so you can bend it but so it won't break but it, and then you let it dry out and it stays like that and that's what I get from this is you know you work with your kids I mean hey they, they can still go south as a parent that's a gut wrencher isn't it you try your best to uh, do that be that godly example whatever but you know but in general it's, it's, it's you try to mold them you try to bend them don't break them but you try to bend them and mold them to God's way and it gets locked in there okay sometimes it takes a while to come back around okay but it's in there there's lots of testimony. That's why I love with Iwana. There's so many testimonies of kids uh, just growing up. And maybe they were the worst, worst kids ever in Iwana and was everybody's worst nightmare. But I got, there's so many testimonies. One of them was uh, an Iwana missionary uh, in Northern California. The reason, he, he was the, one of the worst kids there. He, uh, the only reason why he came was to scope on the little girls. Okay, and he freely admits it. And he was horrible. And, but, but part of being Iwana is you had to memorize those verses. And he said it wasn't until he was 21 in college living an ungodly life. All of a sudden, God got a hold of his heart and guess what started coming back to his brain? All those verses he learned in Awana <laughs> and he got saved, right? And so sometimes even as a kid, not just with the Awana thing, but just as parents, you do your best, right? But you trust that God eventually is gonna, gonna bend it around. That's what he's talking about. He says he's been given, uh, your child's been given specific gifts, talents, and interests in keeping uh, with the purpose, God's purpose for your child. And as parents, we must invest the time in our children to recognize their God-given characteristics and tendencies and in the context of godly instruction, encourage and help them develop those characteristics and tendencies. Which of course means you gotta spend time with your kids. It's gotta be quality time and it's gotta be quantity over time. Godly children, listen to this, godly children do not just happen. Wouldn't it be great if we could just go to Walmart and open up a can of godliness and pour it on our kids? They'd probably sell it if we'd buy it, okay? It doesn't happen that way. They come through the investment of time, energy, and much prayer. Well, that's a lot of work. Well, listen, did you understand that they're a gift from God? You didn't pick up your kid from Walmart. Contrary to popular opinion, you didn't get them under the cabbage leaf either, and some bird didn't drop them off at your doorstep. They came from God. And God says, I want you, hello Christian, to raise a godly generation, and you need to do that in service to me unto them. So, so what? It takes time, everything takes time. That's what he says. Now, what's the role of the man in the church? 
See if we can't cruise through this pretty quick and because uh, we've already kind of gone through this a lot uh, in the first study. Okay, much misunderstanding, top of page 158 about the roles of men and women in the church has uh, resulted from ignoring the fact that the body of believers of the church is viewed as a family, all right? So you're, you're called to be a, a family as a husband and father. God uses that same term. We know that, the family of God, you know, all that stuff. We don't understand that when it comes to the church and we need to line up to it. The Bible teaches us to call God our what? Father, okay, our Father in heaven. Who, uh, we who are redeemed by Jesus Christ are children of God. Again, notice the, the uh, biblical affirmations are among many in which the Bible employs the analogy between human family and the what? Church. So if you want to understand some of the dynamics, even in the church setting, you need to understand they're very similar to the family setting, right? As we're going to see again, as men are called to be the spiritual leaders of the home, guess who's called to be the spiritual leaders of the church? Men. Okay, and that's what he's talking about here. By, by means of this family analogy, God makes some of his most precious promises to us concerning his present love, our future inheritance, and our intimate fellowship with him. Okay, the practical information, uh, implications of these family teachings are so deep and so many-sided that we can never fully fathom them. Uh, let's concentrate on one strand of those he talks about within the Christian community. The Bible invites us to use these family teachings to draw some particular inferences about the respective roles of men and women within the church. In brief, the argument runs as follows. Just as husbands and fathers ought to exercise godly leadership in their human families, so anybody who just sucks air, a warm body, somebody whose temperature is at least above 80 degrees, no, what kind of a man? Not just any guy, a wise guy. Turn to some guy and say, you're a wise guy. Okay, he's not talking three stooges. Even though, how many guys secretly just love that show still after all these years? Yeah, praise God for your honesty tonight. I'll have to preach online next week. Okay, okay, he's not talking about wise guys. He's talking about wise wisdom. Mature men ought to be appointed as fatherly leaders in the where? Right? It's not by chance that God brings over this family thing into the church. All coincides, okay, and keeps it pretty simple if you look at it that way, as we're supposed to. A, a particular important role belongs to also mature women. L like wise mothers of the church, you're to train spiritual daughters, so to speak, by example and word as well. But as in the case of marriage, okay, uh, the respective functions of men and women are not reversible in all aspects, meaning that men and women are uh, called on, are not called on to exercise the decisive fatherly leadership in elders. In other words, let me translate that for you. Yes, we all have our roles, we all have our functions, just like in the family. But when it calls to be for spiritual leadership in the church, just like men are to be in the home, it's the same thing with the church, okay? Society has bucked against this and still bucks against it today uh, with the rise of feminism. And I'm sorry, I'll state it again on record. Uh, I'm sorry, ladies are not called to be pastors. It's not in the scripture, period, right? Men are, okay? And I don't care, I've heard the excuses, well, men ain't leading. Well, two wrongs don't make a right. Right? Now, as he clearly says, that doesn't mean you have no function, no society value. If we get that far, <laughs> run out of time. Please start praying. Okay? Uh, there's many valuable functions. Just like, do you not do, do you do no spiritual value in the home? No. Does that mean you do no spiritual value in church? No. It's just when it comes to the, the top leadership in the church, just like the home, it's supposed to be guys. Right? Listen, again. Do you think the Bible had it wrong for 1950 years before feminism came on the scene? 
No. Do you think that the Bible had it wrong until an atheistic, uh, evolutionary, God-hating drug addict named Sigmund Freud appeared on the scene? No. It's just we keep sliding from the scripture. And then we act like, we compromise, and we act like somehow man's figured out a better way than God. It's crazy. All right, let's continue on. Uh, according to Paul, the principles according, regarding the structures of the human family are to be applied to the church as God's household. It's made clear, Paul to Timothy, and Paul refers to Timothy as his son. And in addition, we're to relate uh, to older men, he says there in the passage, as fathers, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters. Every single one of those is what kind of a term? A family term. And we should also care for widows if they lack immediate family since they're the Christian family. And that's what he says there. I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come before too long. But in case I'm delayed, I write to you that you may know how one ought to conduct himself in the household. Even the word household is a family term. In the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of truth. Now, we now understand why Paul's given the requirement of the management of, the, of his household well for the elders of the church, right? The pastors, okay? The same management skills required in the home are also required where? In the church, the household of faith. And for that reason, it's not surprising that the headship leadership roles in the church are restricted to men, is your blank there, just as in the home. Therefore, when looking for, at the qualifications for pastor, teacher, elder of the church, it's not surprising he only speaks about men aspiring to that position. In fact, Paul has just dealt with the fact that women are forbidden in the church assembly to teach or exercise authority over man. Her attitude and action should exhibit her submission uh, to her husband. But as in the family, the male leadership of the church should be reminded that the women of the church are equal, equal image bearers of God. And in addition, women like men, guess what? Anybody, male, female, you become a Christian, what, what does God give you? spiritual gifts and they're called to use them to minister to the body right just as we're different everybody's different we get different gifts just as some are christian men some are christian women we have different functions if you just it's like in marriage it's a family term as we saw before in marriage men just be who god's called you to be and what he's fulfilled you to be be that peanut butter ladies just be what god's called you to be that godly woman that jelly leave it alone slap it together make something wonderful and same thing in the family of God. Just do it God's way. Hey, it's a wonder how things work out pretty well. It's almost like God knows what he's doing. Okay, let's continue on. Peter instructs the younger men to be subject to your elder. And all of you elders and younger men, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. All right, the men who are not among the leadership should be actively involved in the church, exhibiting spiritual leadership for their wives and children. This is especially important for sons to act, is your blank there, as a pattern they can follow of godly male headship. As for men in leadership positions, we've already seen the high qualifications Paul set for them and the deacons uh, qualifications follow as well. Now let's take a look at some biblical patterns. <clears throat> Excuse me, this is for elders or pastors, just very quickly. Financial oversight, establishing and defending doctrinal statement, exercising spiritual oversight, teaching the word, the Bible, praying for the flock, church discipline, ministry and prayer for the sick, discipleship, mentoring of young men for future leadership, and the appointment of other elders. Now, in addition, the Bible also gives some qualifications for deacons, and the term deacon is diakonos, 
Okay, and it means servant or helper. Actually, in the Greek, it literally means a shuffler of the dirt, right? That's kind of a cool term. And it, uh, it's uh, developed from the benevolent needs of the early church, Acts chapter 6. And you take a look at the functions there, and uh, they've got a, a wide range of responsibilities uh, that the deacons carried out. Uh, in comparing the list of qualifications for elders or pastors versus the deacon uh, carried out, they're very similar, but one qualification is distinctly absent from the list of deacons, that being the ability to teach. Now, does that mean a deacon can't teach? Of course not. But as we saw before in the fivefold ministry, uh, 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 apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, it's actually four. We've talked about this many times. It's uh, uh, apostles, prophets, uh, evangelists, pastors, that is teachers. In other words, as a pastor, as an elder, you as a pastor, if you're truly called to be a pastor, you have to have the gift of teaching, right? If you don't, maybe if God's called you to leadership in the church, you can be a deacon. And again, it doesn't mean deacons can't teach, okay? But there, there's that one difference thing that is for pastors. You need to teach. Why? Because as we saw there, what is one of the biggest major things you're supposed to be doing for the church? Instruction. And not just instruction in the word, but also defending the doctrine of the church. You got to be able to teach, okay, is what he's talking about. Now, as a result, we can say that they probably, the deacons, did any task in the church that would have taken the elders or pastors away from their task of teaching and preaching the word of God. And as you take a look there, it's clear in Acts chapter six, that's exactly what was going on. When the apostles who were teaching the early church there, they said, hey man, pick these seven guys, the deacons, that's where you get the birth of that. And he says, we, 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 gotta, get, we gotta continue on with, with prayer and the ministry of the word, okay? There are all these other practical things that gotta be taken care of, but if we start doing all that too, the, the preaching and the prayer is gonna begin to suffer for the church. Okay, and that's what he's talking about there. Uh, this would include taking care of the widows who are in need. Uh, deacons might also, top of page 160, have included some type of ministry to orphans since James tells us, this is the pure undefiled religion in the sight of God and Father to visit orphans and widows in their distress. And in our day, the oversight of the church building and grounds would probably fit into the responsibilities of the deacon, but the specific functions of the deacon are not given probably because they are to take care of the needs as they arise, okay? So it's how do you know until it arises? And their jobs may include many things. Thus the functions of the deacons is as broad as their name implies. They're servants. And so they serve in many different ways. They were to perform any, there's your final blank there, any service that might burden the elders and thus take time away from their primary task of ministering the word of God. And if everybody just did what we're called to do, I got a theory. It goes like this. God's pretty smart. God knows what he's doing. And if we just do what he says, our personal lives, our family lives, our church life, and our country could experience those blessings. But it starts individually with us Okay, and men, I put it on us. Ladies, praise God, we made it. Give it up for those three people to get to faith tonight. Awesome. Wow. Okay, next week we're gonna get into what you're called uh, to do, but we have to lead the way by example, men. No more excuses, no more goofing off. Lead the way back by example, and uh, don't look around for somebody to blame. Well, hi, this is Pastor Billy Crone of Sunrise Baptist Church, and hope you enjoyed today's study. But before you go, let me ask you one final question. Are you sure that if you were to die today, 
that you go to heaven and not hell? Before you answer that, let me share a couple things with you. Did you know that the Bible says that God is holy and that we are not? And the Bible also says that the wages of our sin or our unholiness is death. In other words, when we die, and it's coming for each one of us, we're all marching towards the grave at different speeds, but it's going to happen. The Bible says, therefore, since the wages of our sin is death, we deserve to die and go straight to hell and not to heaven. And that's bad enough, but to make matters worse, we don't want to admit this. God already knows. He knows uh, all of our behavior, everything, our thoughts, what we've done, what even we're going to do. He knows it all. He's gone. Even though he already knows this, we don't want to admit this. And so, out of love and mercy, God gave us something called his law, or the Ten Commandments. It's kind of like his x-ray into our heart to show us what he already knows, that he is holy and that we are not. And it's this unholiness or sin that separates us from him. Let's take a look at God's x-ray, if you will, his divine law, to show us what he already knows. The Ten Commandments, uh, the ninth one, says this, you shall not bear false witness. Okay, that's called lying. Okay, and if you've ever told a lie once, which we all have, myself included, the Bible says that makes you a liar. Okay, the, the, another commandment says you shall not steal. Okay, uh, and you might think, well, that's something that everybody does. Well, it doesn't make it right, and it demonstrates what God is trying to show us, that uh, we all have sin, and it's separating us from him. Even if you took a pencil in the third grade from somebody, if you did it without permission, that's stealing. And so now you've become a thief. The Bible says that you shall not use the Lord's name in vain. And how interesting it is and unfortunate that the only name under heaven by which men might be saved, the name Jesus Christ, has now become a common cuss word. The Bible says that God is so holy that even his name is holy. If you've taken the Lord's name in vain and used it as a cuss word or even flippantly, the Bible calls that the sin of blasphemy. And so now you become a blasphemer. The Bible says you shall not commit adultery. And Jesus says if you even look at another person with lust in your eye, you've committed adultery in your heart. And finally, the Bible says uh, you shall not murder. And you might think, well, hey, I haven't done that one. Really? Well, again, the Bible says that the sin of hatred is the same as the sin of murder. The only difference is you pulled the trigger, if you will, in your heart. You wish they were dead. And in God's eyes, it's the same thing in principle. Folks, that's only just a couple of the Ten Commandments. We didn't even go through all of them. But I think you're starting to get the picture. The Bible is correct. We have all fallen short of the glory of God, myself included. And that we are separated from God as a result. And so when our time comes, we're not automatically going to heaven. We are headed for judgment. We are headed for hell. Now let me tell you the good news. The good news is that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only begotten son, Jesus Christ, to save us. Jesus Christ died on the cross. It was the death penalty of its day. He paid in full uh, the price for our sins to be forgiven. Let me give you an analogy. For instance, even today, we could see that a person could commit a crime uh, they, they cannot reverse it. The, the sentence has been passed. The judge has uh, slammed his gavel and they are ushered off into their jail cell. And in this particular crime, they are going to receive the death penalty. 
And so they're behind bars just waiting for the time, waiting for the call for them to go and uh, receive the death penalty. But believe it or not, as we know, there is a way that a person can get off a death row. And that is if the one in authority, the governor, would grant them a pardon. Now, they didn't earn it. Uh, They certainly don't deserve it. And there's nothing they could do uh, to earn it because nothing can reverse their crime. Okay? Yet the one in authority has that ability to grant them a pardon. Well, can I tell you something? That's what God has done through Jesus Christ. The cross was the death penalty of the day. God sent his one and only son to die on the cross, to take the death penalty in our place, and that if we would just receive his pardon for all of our sins, God is willing to allow us to get off a death row. He's willing to forgive us completely of all of our sins. That's the good news that I want to share with you. God loves you. The Bible says that God is not willing that anyone should perish, but everyone come to repentance. Won't you, if that's you, call upon the name of Jesus Christ right now? Won't you ask him to forgive you for sins? The Bible says that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Won't you do that now, wherever you are? Please, take God up on his amazing, loving offer. I'll let you down. Man will let you down. People will let you down. But God never will. He wants to adopt you into his forever family. He loves you. He's willing to forgive you of anything and everything you've ever done, past, present, and future. It's amazing. Please, call upon Jesus now. Well, this has been Pastor Billy Crone of Sunrise Baptist Church. If there's anything that we can do for you, please don't hesitate to ask. Our number and information will come up here on the screen here shortly. And remember, I hope to see you in heaven. God bless. Thank you for watching this presentation from Sunrise Baptist Church. If you would like to send us a letter or any other kind of postage, you can reach us at 1780 Betty Lane, Las Vegas, Nevada, 89156. For more information, you can give us a call at 702-452-8599 or email us at bcrone at getalifemedia.com or you can visit our website at www.getalifemedia.com. Billy Crone and this ministry can also be found on Facebook and Twitter. Join us for services at www.sunriselv.com.